For Easter, we are going to continue on this morning in the Gospel of Mark. This is actually going to be our well, last or second to last, depending on how you categorize next week's sermon uh, in the Gospel of Mark. So we've been traveling through it for uh, two semesters now. And, uh, and so now we've come to the very end in which we look at Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And so if you have your Bible or if you have your iPad or your laptop that you need to log in on, uh, or uh, whatever else that you're not watching this uh, stream on, I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 15 with us, and let's look at it together. And so we're going to be in uh, 15, starting in verse 20. Now, uh, really, but we're going to hit, hit a lot of it in there. But while you're turning there, I want to tell you about uh, this boat. And so in 2014, the UK government commissioned a new polar research vessel okay so this thing was going to be awesome it's going to be a 300 million dollar project it's going to be used to study uh, do environmental studies uh, in the polar regions and so this thing was going to be giant or it is giant they've made it now so it's 32,000 square feet of cargo space it's 410 feet long it's got space for 30 crew members and 60 researchers to be able to to live and work on this ship so in 2016, the Natural Environmental Research Council, which is a government organization in the UK called, kind of, the acronym is NERC. I don't know, it's kind of, I don't know, maybe that's how I'd say it. I don't know how you'd say it, NEC. I don't know how you'd say that in the UK, whatever. But this agency, they're the ones who own the ship. They put out an online poll on, on, on social media saying, hey, listen, we want your help in naming this ship. And so, rightly, the winner of this online poll, overwhelmingly, with over 124,000 votes, was the name Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> Sorry. Was the name Bodie McBoatface. The world's greatest name ever for a boat. Now, the, the, they ended up rejecting the name. I'm really depressed about it, okay? So, so NERC came in and they said, listen, we're not naming the boat that. And, uh, but they took some heat for it. Um, they ended up naming some other little small vessel, vessel that was on the ship, Bodie McBoatface, in honor of the online poll. But they didn't, they did, they, in the, they're in the UK, they don't care about democracy. And so, um, and so, why do I tell you that? Because sometimes your dreams and your plans don't pan out the way that you expected it to happen. And so, why, like, what, what has that, how does that connect with us? And so, here, this is Easter Sunday. Like, we made it. It's, and I'm currently looking into a dark sanctuary with, with four other people in it. And, and so this, like, this Easter does not look like we expect Easter to look like or want Easter to look like or panned it out to look like. But what's interesting is that our disciple, the disciple Jesus' disciples, the very first believers, actually had an Easter that is more similar to, to the one that we're experiencing today than we do every, than we have every other year. Because, because at that very first Easter, they were assembled just like you were, at like, just like you are now. And so, and so Jesus has just died, and they're all assembled in this room. They're, they're, they're in this house. They've got the windows shut. They've got the door locked. They're in there terrified because they, they're trying to not like, get the other Jewish leaders to know where they're at. And so they're trying to be as socially distant as possible. And so you today are celebrating Easter just the same way as the very first Christians did on the very first Easter. Now, why, 
why, why, why did they do that? Like, why were they scared, locked in homes? So that's what, that's what Luke chapter 24 says. It's like the women came back, they went to the tomb, they came back and they told the disciples, and they, they didn't believe the women. In verse 11, it says, this seemed like nonsense to them. And then at the end of John, at the end of the John, it says, that Sunday night they were all gathered together, indoors with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Now, why were they like that? Now, I want to do a flashback. I want to go back to Friday. So, what happened on Friday? This is the middle of the night on Friday. Jesus has just been arrested. It's never a good thing when you're arrested, but Jesus has just been arrested. And so if you're looking in your Bible, go back to, to chapter 14. This is in verse 53. 53 through 65, Jesus is brought before a group called the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin, they were, there were 71 elders who governed Jewish religious practice in life. And so they think of them as like a court and a congress at the same time. And the high priest was the judge over all of it. But when someone did something against the Jewish law, they were brought before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin were the ones who, 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 who gave them a punishment. And so in the middle of the night, they convened together because Jesus has just been arrested. And so they get all these guys out of bed, bring them into the Sanhedrin. They're going to bring Jesus before them to go on a, a hasty sham trial. And so they start trying to gather all of these witnesses to try to get them to all to say that he did some bad stuff, but none of the witnesses will corroborate. None of them, their stories aren't adding up. Um, now, now, for most Jews, going before the Sanhedrin was a pretty severe deal. Like, it wasn't something you took lightly, and, uh, and so, uh, but Jesus is there. And in this hasty trial, those Jewish leaders decide to charge Jesus with blasphemy. Now, here in the U.S., we don't use that word a whole lot. Um, but what blasphemy really is, there's, there's two ways you can commit it. So one way to commit blasphemy is to, to claim equality with God, to say that you have the same status or the same abilities as God has. Or the second way to commit blasphemy is to speak irreverently about God. And so what these guys are claiming Jesus did was to claim equality with God. And so therefore he was a blasphemer. And according to the Jewish law, someone who commits blasphemy deserves to die. But there's a problem for these dudes. It's because even though they are the Congress or the court that governs Jewish life, they don't have the authority to put someone to death. So like, kind of like, I mean, in this church, like if we kind of met, we decided, hey, you know what, this person's bad. You know, Jared needs to be kicked out of here. We can't decide to kill him because there's a government over us. Well, the same for these guys. Like the Jewish leaders... Like, they have these Roman rulers over them. And so what do you do if there's a problem that you can't deal with? You appeal up. And so when I was a kid, uh, like, my, I've, got, I've got a brother and a sister. And, and at times, we would annoy each other on purpose. And so my brother and I would team up against our sister. Like, sometimes she would like to get in her room and dance with the door shut. And if we kind of peeked open the door and tried to make fun of her, then, you know, she would get really mad at us. And and so, like, we would do different things to, to pick on one another. But, but what happens on the days in which, in which your siblings will not stop, will not leave you alone, or there's a situation that, like, you can't handle? Your, maybe your older sibling just will not leave you alone. You are not strong enough to, to get them away. Um, or that your younger sibling just will not, like, doesn't get the message no matter how many times you punch them, and so they won't leave you alone. What do you do in that moment? You appeal to dad. And have dad come in and fix the situation for you. 
what's what's happening here with the Jews? They don't have the authority to kill this guy, and so they're appealing to a guy who does. And so they go on to Pilate. So this is in chapter 15, verse 1. So they head to Pilate's house, and at this point, they wait until it's early in the morning, 7, 8 a.m. And, uh, and so now they're heading to Pilate's house to go take Jesus on trial, put Jesus on a second trial. And so that's where we're at here. Now, Pilate does not want to kill Jesus. In fact, he, he looks at Jesus and he's like, listen, are you the king of the Jews? And, and, and Jesus just said, you say I am. Well, the Pilate, he looks at him and he, he turns to the Jewish leaders and he's like, There's, I don't have a reason to kill this guy. Like, he hasn't done anything wrong. And, uh, but he knows that these Jewish leaders are creating kind of a riot scene. There's a mob mentality starting to build outside of his house. So <coughs> ignore that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but for, for Pilate, there's two things that he doesn't want. On one hand, he does not want to kill Jesus. But on the other hand, Pilate does not want a riot. Because if there is a riot, then what that says to Pilate's bosses back in Rome is that he's too incompetent to handle his position here. He can't keep the people here in, in Judea under control. And so he starts to try to reason with the Jewish leaders. He, try, he's, he's, he's go, he goes out to them. He's like, guys, listen, this, what has he done wrong? What do you want him to do? But then he comes out and he's like, oh, I've got an idea. Every year at this time of the year, the Passover, Pilate would bring out a prisoner that they had, usually a political prisoner, that the Jews wanted released. And so he would, at, at the Passover time, he would release one of their political prisoners in order to, to kind of keep the peace and kind of show, hey, we're not that bad. We'll, you give you, we'll give you back guys we put in jail. And, uh, and, so, and so he comes out and he's like, listen, listen, it's the Passover time. We have Jesus apprehended. Now, who do you want released to you? Do you want him or do you want Barabbas? Let me tell you about Barabbas. Barabbas, in some translations will call him a murderer. Some translations will call him a revolutionary uh, or something like that. Here's what he was. He was a rebel. He was someone who tried to overthrow, he was a zealot. He tried to overthrow the Roman uh, emperors or the, the, the Roman authority over them. And usually what happens when you try to start a, re a revolution or a rebellion is you kill some people in the process and then the people you're rebelling against get really mad about that. And, uh, and so what happened is, is Barabbas is now in jail and he's probably awaiting a cross. And, uh, but, he, but Pilate brings Barabbas out and he's like, listen, listen, I'll release one of these guys to you. Just stop crying, stop yelling. I'll, which one do you want? And they're like, give us Barabbas. And then he says, well, then what do you want me to do with this, the king of the Jews? And then they look and they yell, crucify him. Crucify him. And so Pilate, he knows, he doesn't, he knows Jesus hasn't done anything wrong, but he doesn't want to riot more than he doesn't want Jesus dead. And so he's like, okay. And so he condemns Jesus to death, delivers him to be beaten, but then look what happens next. Verse 16 is the soldiers then take him from the palace, take him from Pilate's house, and they begin, they begin parading him around town. And so they, it says, it says they, 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 the whole company together, they, they dress him in a purple robe, 
They're making fun of him for claiming to be the king of the Jews. They twist a crown of thorns and push it on his head. And, uh, and then they begin to salute him. They're like, hail, hail the king of the Jews. And then, and then some of them get on the ground in front of him after they've beaten this guy. They get on the ground and start, start, start uh, paying homage to him as the king of the Jews. And so, so you can imagine this scene as Jesus has, has gone through this sham trial, and then he's been beaten, condemned to death, and now he's being paraded by the military around and being made fun of and saluted to. But then after this, he's forced to carry his own cross. But after his beatings and everything, he can't handle the weight. So here's what this looked like. A cross back then, one, crucifixion was actually real, more common than you think it was. And so uh, the cross wasn't something they made up strictly for Jesus. It was a really common thing that, that, that Rome did to rebels and to slaves and to pirates. And so these three kind of people who fell into these groups could be ones who, who could face ex- execution through a crucifixion, through, through, the, through the cross. And so... And so how it worked is you had a vertical beam that was stationary. And then you, after you were beaten, you, you were forced to carry your, your top beam. And so the cross was the shape of a T, not a, not a cross. Most likely it was more of a T. And you carried that top beam to your place of death. And then what, once you got there, they nailed you to it and then lifted you up and put that beam in place on the vertical, on the vertical beam. Well, Jesus, after his beatings, he, he doesn't have the strength left to carry that vertical beam or that, that horizontal beam. And so on the way there, they get a guy named Simon uh, to carry it for him. And uh, so they just grab him out of the crowd and say, you carry this. And they head out to the place where he's going to die. So while, when you get out there, then what they do is they, they, they stretch you out and they put nails likely through your arms here. Um, to hold you to the cross. Now, why do they nail you to the cross? Well, crosses weren't 20 feet in the air. Usually, if you were on a cross, you were only a couple feet up off the ground. And so you were nailed to the cross most in most cases in an effort to prevent your friends or accomplices to come and, and take you off of the cross in the middle of the night. And so if you were nailed there, then it was a lot harder to get you off and that would have been in less high-profile cases. And Jesus is, it was super high-profile. High there would have been no one who could have come and, and gotten him off the cross. But that, that was, that was how, how it worked. Now, you're hanging there on the cross. It, it's not a quick death. It's not like, hey, let's go to the guillotine or, or you know, shoot the guy or whatever it is. Like, it's like, no, like, when you get hung on a cross, the, the way that you die is by suffocation. After a couple days of hanging there, you lose your strength of being able to push yourself up to get air in your lungs. And so after a couple days, then, then finally you, you suffocate because you can't, you can't get yourself up to catch a breath anymore, and then, you, and then you pass away. This is why when, 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 when Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' corpse that same day, just six hours later, Pilate's really shocked. He's like, wait, is that dude really dead? So he turns to one of his, his soldiers. He's like, is that guy dead already? And he's like, yeah. He's like, wow, sure, you can have the body. I don't really care. And, and so, so there's a, he's shocked as to how quickly Jesus died because usually it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a days-long process, not just hours-long process. So 
all of that to say, you can imagine while Jesus is, why Jesus' disciples were locked in a room, dark, not wanting any Jews, Jewish leaders to know where they're at. Because for them, this has been a terrifying three days. Because just two days earlier, Jesus was nailed to a cross in front of them. And they had to flee to not be caught up in that. Where in the span of 24 hours, Jesus went from teaching openly in the temple to being executed on a cross reserved for slaves and reserved for rebels. And so they saw this happen to their leader, and they don't want to be associated with that. They want to be away from that. They want to hide because they don't want that to happen to them. Because for them, there's going to be a fear that the Jewish leaders are going to come and look for them to kill any devotion left that there was to that Jesus guy. But I want to take you back to something. Because there's something else unfolding in this scene that reveals to us this, this beautiful nature of our God. Okay, So there's an aspect that, that has stood out to me like flashing lights in the text as I've been reading about this leading up to this Easter Sunday. And, and, and here, here's what it is. All of the mocking. All of the, the making fun of Jesus in this text has just has been dumbfounding to me. Let me read this to you again. This is in Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence. And he called the whole company together. And they dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were hitting him on the head with a stick, and spitting on him, and getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage, and after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes back on him. That passage, and there's, there's a couple more in it in here like that, but that passage especially has been dumbfounding to me, that someone could treat the God of the universe in that manner. But you want, you want to know what an even crazier thought is? is that Jesus took it. Like Jesus sat there and allowed them to do this, and he was silent about it. Now remember, we saw this back in Mark chapter 4. Like Jesus has the ability to stop a storm over the ocean that terrifies professional fishermen. Like he, had the, like he's, he literally stood up and he told the storm to stop, and it did immediately. And so it's not, his quietness here is not a sign of weakness. And it's, it's, it's not a sign of his inability to do anything about this because he's got handcuffs on or something like that. He can't handle this situation. Like if he wanted in an instant, he could have called down an army of angels from heaven to come to his rescue. And so his, his being quiet here is not that he, was, that he was weak. And so that tells us something else about what's happening here. If you have the ability to put a stop to this, and you don't, then that must mean there was a purpose behind it. And so that's what we're learning here. He subjected himself to this situation for a purpose. And Mark tells us what that is in chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 45, 
Mark tells us this is his purpose for coming. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here's what that just said. Is that he came to die the death that you deserved because of your sin, which is rebellion against God. And so he came to exchange his life and to give your release. That's what he came to do. And so above and beyond any desire of, I mean, above and beyond the desire of any natural man to save himself in this situation and to like, we want, always want to do this. So we want to save ourselves. We want to look out for number one. We always want to be the one who wins to show strength to, to put down the oppressor or to put down the one who, who's going to make fun of us. We always want to fight for justice. But, but Jesus, the one who had the ability to do that, walks into this situation and follows the Father's plan for him to the point of being humiliated on a cross. That, that is a dumbfounding thought. For me, I, I keep saying dumbfounding a lot, but that's just truly like that's the word that I keep coming to in like reading this. Bruce Shelley, who's a who's a church historian, who's now passed away, but but he said this. He said Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central saving event the humiliation of its God. Isn't that a crazy thought? That is love. That is love. And don't forget who he is. Jesus was the God of the, is the God of the universe. He's the one through whom everything was created. But then he came and he set that aside and to, chose to walk the path of humility for you and for me. And so his humility is the pathway to our hearts. And so Paul Paul wrote this, the Apostle Paul. He wrote a poem about this cross event in Philippians, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 5, he says this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Compare this to all other gods. All other little g-gods, all throughout history and all over the world, like all our perception of the gods are that they are arbitrary and that they're angry at us. And we have to do like said different sacrifices, like cut ourselves or, or do things to placate their anger and to make them kind of like this or put up with us or maybe take us to a good place someday uh, or allow us to reincarnate in some manner someday. Uh, that, that would be good for us. Like that's our, that's our uh, the common, common perception of the gods. But then here's Christianity. Here is Jesus, and we see instead a God who came to sacrifice himself for us. 
And so he had all authority in heaven. He could have done anything he wanted, and yet he chose to come. He chose to be spit on. He chose to be slapped. He chose to be beaten all the way to a gruesome death on the cross in order that you and I might have our hearts turned towards him and be able to find life and to be able to find love and to be able to find peace and forgiveness. That is love. But that's not the end of the story. Because here's the truth. Why we celebrate Easter is that he did not remain dead. He didn't remain in the tomb on Sunday morning, which was a day and a half later. So if we say three days later, in reality, it was, it was uh, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday morning. He was, on, he was in the tomb about a day and a half. Uh, but you say three days because the Jews counted each separate day, uh, just in case you're wondering about that. But, but three days later, uh, on Sunday morning, Jesus rose back to life defeating death, and now he reigns as the king. So here's the second half of the Apostle Paul's poem here. In verse 9, it says, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will forever be Jesus' glory. The length and the depth and the height of his love for us that he endured the cross for you and me. And so now all people, and this includes you, are called to humble ourselves before him, to follow his example, and to come to him by faith. Because now he is reigning as the king. And if, and if this story, if this, if this history, like this thing from history, like tells us anything about him, it's that he is the king of love. And now he calls us to come and find life in him, to come and humbly submit ourselves to him. And if, and if, and if he is the king of love, then what, he, what, what this teaches us is that that will actually be for your good. It's not to, not to take, give you a bunch of rules. And it's not to, to like to take your fun away or whatever it is. Like, no, Jesus says, no, come to me. and You will find life. and You'll find forgiveness and you'll find peace. This is for your good. You were designed to worship him. And so in him, we can find forgiveness and we can find a purpose. And the last thing is this. I want you to see how this changed the disciples. Because remember at the beginning, they were in the room, locked, windows down, socially distant from everyone else in Jerusalem, much like you and me. But I want you to see how this changed everything for them because just a couple weeks later, just a couple weeks later, in that same city that Jesus was arrested in and crucified in, where, where Peter denied Jesus out of fear, literally a couple weeks later, Peter stands up in the most popular location in Jerusalem. And what does he do? He starts proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And this is in Acts. Acts chapter 2. I want to tell you his main point of his sermon. 
is in verse 36. It says this, Therefore, he's proclaiming this on the Temple Mount to everyone who will listen. He doesn't care if he's going to get arrested. He says this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. How do you get from a point of being scared of the Jewish leaders and being locked in a house to being willing to go proclaim him in the most populous part of the city? After his resurrection, he comes. And the news of that, the story of that, the knowledge of what he did for us and how he defeated death then captures their heart, captured his heart and turned him to where all of a sudden he didn't have to be scared anymore. But he could be bold because of the love that he's found, the purpose that he's found, the life that he's found in his Savior. And so therefore he's able to move out and go make much of Jesus in the city that, that wants to destroy that name. And so, Jesus' resurrection changed everything for them. Because he was alive, nothing else mattered. And so they gave their lives to follow him and to proclaim him to others. And so, so here's the question now, is where are you? Where are you? Like, there are some of us watching, there are some of us watching, who've never experienced this love of Christ and given our lives to follow him. And so if you're, que- if you're questioning it, here's a diagnostic question for you. Are you trusting Jesus as your Savior? And have you given your life to follow him? And if the answer is no, then today is the day to submit your life to him. Today is the day on Easter Sunday. Today is the day to recognize that he is the God of love who is resurrected from the dead and now now desires to lead us to love and to follow him with our lives because since he resurrected from the dead, nothing else matters. And so today's the day to give your life to that and say, I've never experienced that love. I've never experienced forgiveness in this manner. I've never experienced a God like that. I've never been able to worship a God like that who would go to that length for me. And if that's you, then this is an opportunity to say, I want that. I want him. I want to experience that. I want to find purpose in him. And so here's what you do. You call out to him. You say, Jesus, I have not known you, but I want to. I want to follow you with my life because of the love that you've shown me. And if that's you, I'd love for you to let us know. If you're on Facebook, write it on the comments. If you're on our website, then go, to, go scroll to the very bottom, and there's a, there's a phone number and an email. Let us know. We want to get in t- contact with you. We'd love to find out how Jesus is working in your heart. And for the rest of us who are already believers who have given our lives to follow him, Let us praise him today. Let's praise him because he is the God who came for us and resurrected from the dead and now he reigns as our king. And so let's pray. Father, come before you. And it's in Jesus. uh, God, we we, we pray, God, that you would would capture our hearts with this message. Like, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
for Jesus coming for us. And, and I pray that you would lead us to, to love you in the way that you have loved us. God, allow us to be filled with hope, filled with purpose, filled with joy, based on, on you, our God who came to us and didn't wait on us to come to you. And so I pray for those of us who, who, who don't know you. God, I pray that you would capture our hearts with this. God, I pray that you would break us down and, and cause us to come to you in humbleness, just like Jesus came for us in humility recognizing that we need you. And so I pray that you would fill those of us just with joy and with purpose and with faith in Jesus to be able to commit our lives to following him. And for us and others, God, I pray that you would lead us to be filled with just with joy and with a passion for following you. And so we thank you so much for this Easter. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.